Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We just keep chugging along on this program, and I hope that you are blessed and encouraged and that your mind and heart and soul are uh, are stimulated uh, and enlarged by these conversations. So I'm thrilled that today I'm talking with my friend John Lynch, who for 27 years was a teaching pastor at Open Door Fellowship in Phoenix. John is a world-class communicator. He's spoken around the world, and he's the co-author of several books, including The Cure, Bose Cafe, the novel, and Behind the Mask, Additionally, John has written his own story as a kind of memoir that will make you laugh and cry within several pages. And if you've not read the book, The Cure, it's a short, concise, inexpensive uh, representation of all that John and the ministry in Phoenix called True Faced. It's a statement of all that they represent, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. In this conversation, uh, we're all over the map in both episodes, but the first thing that you'll hear is the secret that John carried for decades, even while ministering and offering a message of hope and freedom and authenticity and being able to step out from behind the fig leaves of shame. We also talk about this idea that we change and are transformed, not by what we do, especially for God, but by the simple idea of living in the reality that we are loved. There's also uh, a special uh, conversation about John's relationship with the late movie star Ernest Borgnine. For you baby boomers, that will be especially fascinating. So sit back, relax, stand up, stay on the treadmill wherever you are. But here's part one of my conversation with John Lynch. John Lynch, we're finally talking and doing a podcast. How long have we talked about this? I think since 1963. I believe so. I was, I was eight, and I just said, we need to do this. I just, I don't even know you yet. but we I know, and I, I, I didn't know you because I wasn't born yet, but <laughs> I actually decided to be born because I'd heard that you had already right. existed for eight years. 
So, man, I can tell right away this is going to be a good conversation. You know what's ironic is I talked to you twice on the phone over probably a five or six year span, and I've only been face to face with you twice. But we have so many people that are dear friends to both of us. And because I've read all of your material and memorized it in Latin, uh, I just I just have this real affection for you. And I, I feel like there's just a deeper connection than what is warranted based on the amount of time we've spent together. How fun was it to get to be with each other at the Heart of Man premiere and just validate exactly what you're saying? Um, for years, I would run into people all over the place and uh, they would say, tell me about you. And they would talk about your impress on their life. And I just thought, I like this guy. And I don't even know him yet. So uh, how fun. How, what a blast that was to be together and uh, get to hang out at least for a few minutes that night. Yeah. Hollywood in September. And we, go, we both got to pretend like we were hipsters for a minute with uh, the, uh, the DJ rhythm in the background at the Hollywood Club and everyone looking really great and in their 20s and me just going, I can't even pretend to be cool anymore. <laughs> We're old men amongst these folks, but it was a blast. That was so fun. So thank you to you for um, your role in the heart of man. You, uh, you and some of your team there have really poured into uh, the men and women that created that film and wrote the screenplay. And then your role in terms of the movie, where I learned some things about you that I didn't even know. And you were very vulnerable about uh, your abuse and, I literally have people come up to me and say, do you remember that guy in the movie who said, I thought God was disgusted with me? I'm like, yeah, I know him. And then they'll talk about how powerful that was to say, that's exactly how I felt. And then to talk about basically where you spoke out of today and how you've experienced healing. Yeah, thank you. That was, um, as I write about, I think in Worst Day, for a long time, I couldn't talk about that. I, I mean, that happened when I was in fifth grade, uh, got violated by a kid in a orange crate boxcar of train. And I think I just at that point just went, ah, no, I, no one can know this. This, uh, this is too hideous and nobody will get me and nobody will understand. I'll lose my seat at the table. And I had never told one person about that. It was wow. just... It was just, I, and everywhere I would go when I would meet, meet new people, I just thought it was written all over me. This is an abused person. This is a violated person. And even when I would be speaking places, I just thought, can we drive around the parking lot one more time? Because I'm not ready to go in. So that, that has been quite a journey for me, Michael, uh, to be able to, uh, I, I think I first told Bill uh, through all, uh, we were <laughs> we were outside getting ready to go back into session somewhere in Seattle or something, and I told him about it, and he said, "I am so sorry," and mm-hmm. and he was so kind and compassionate. But then he said, "All right, we gotta we gotta go back in. We're on five minutes," and I was underwhelmed by his response and my wife's response. I thought she would leave me for sure and be disgusted mm. with me, and instead it was like, "I'm so sorry." So it has been, now I can't stop talking about it. I want so much to make sure that things like that 
don't get hidden about me. Yeah. And you're describing Bill, who, by the way, is one of my favorite people on the planet in the very first interview in the Restoring the Soul series, the first of now what will be 60 wow. interviews. Uh, but, but his response and your wife's response, if I'm reading you correctly, it's not they blew me off, right. but, but they, they were unfazed by it. Like, this doesn't change anything. Well said. And I thought, okay, um, Jesus, I'm trusting you with me. I'm going to lose my marriage. I'm going to lose my ministry. I'm going to lose all of this. And that's exactly what they were saying is maybe even Stacy would have said, uh, I probably knew. I probably didn't know the particulars, but I knew there was something. And wow. yeah, so, so, so sweet to see, you know, we, we make that line in Bo's Cafe, what if there was a place so safe that the worst of me could be known and I would discover that I'd be loved more, not less in the telling of it. Mm. And that, that idea that, the people that love me most have been waiting so long to get to love me uh, mm. in those things that they know I'm hiding. Mm. John, what changed? What, what series of events began to occur that on that day you told Bill that story when your whole life you had packaged it far, far away and even written a book about authenticity? That's right. Um, I wish I had a clean answer for you. Maybe, maybe I was just, uh, tired because it takes a lot of energy uh, to be me when um, nobody in the world knows the thing that plagues me the most, mm-hmm. not a human being on the planet. And so uh, I think I just was lonely. I think I just wanted others to know that to be true about me and to see what would you do with it, Bill? It's interesting. I told Bill first. Uh, not Stacy. It was like, I trust you so much, Bill, but if this doesn't work, at least I have my marriage. I can hide there, you know? So, uh, but it was just one of those situations where I don't think I went into that day knowing that I was going to tell anyone. Uh, Hmm. But I think I was just in the middle of teaching these truths that we were teaching and thought, uh, this feels somewhat duplicit for me to keep not telling this about my past. Mm. And so um, as a grown man, uh, pastor, theologian, author, you really, <laughs> and, I, and I understand perfectly what you're saying, but I just want to make sure that listeners understand all of that quote street cred as authenticity and being a man of God but you were really afraid that Bill and your wife were going to be done with you. Like you were convinced that that was the end of the relationship. Isn't that crazy? Because I hear you say that now, and that sounds absurd. I mean, right. we, we teach that we draw closer to each other, and there wasn't anything that I had done. It's not like I had stolen heroin on the black market. It, it, it was something that had happened to me. But – it felt like if you knew that about me, you would be uh, embarrassed for me, disgusted by me, want to somehow distance yourself from me uh, because just uh, you just feel unclean. That's that's what you've. Even though I know 
all these truths about what Christ had done to me and for me and, and what was true about my life, what would you do about it? I, I knew what he had done about it. I knew that <laughs> I were old. I, I knew that there was no problem there. It's just, what would you do about it? And um, still, still, even today, probably would have to admit that I uh, struggle with people pleasing, still wanting to be loved by every man, woman, and child, not just now, but who has ever lived, you know? So it, it, um, that's the one it's, it's Jesus. I knew he was okay with me, but I thought, man, oh man, what will happen to me now? Will people be embarrassed for me when I preach? If this word gets out, will people be embarrassed for me Mm. and pull away? All those, all those things are the, the, the messages of shame, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that something is fundamentally uniquely wrong about John Lynch and more so than Michael, more so than anybody on this planet, even though I know and can preach and can teach the truths of authenticity, of grace, of forgiveness, of a shame-free identity of all those things. Um, it's still, there's a lag time in believing that uh, in my real relationships. Yeah. It's a lot of us um, for a long time. I, I keep running into people who tell me I'm just now starting to trust to take off my mask. And there are people who have been in ministry 30, 40 years in significant places. You know? So tell me about all of this that we're talking about that happened in your life. Um, this is really the heart and soul of your mission is to bring this good news to people. And you're not a psychotherapist. You're not uh, Renee Brown, an academic that's going around doing research or talking about this. You, you filter all of this uh, into and through the gospel so that the gospel really sets people free and so that the gospel is more deeply understood. So talk to me about how that came to be in your life. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, I came to Christ... Uh, December 23rd, 1979, through through um, my high school students when I was teaching uh, here in Phoenix uh, at Arcadia High School. And I, I, I thought I thought you were going to say through the through your high school students in your youth ministry that you were running while you were on staff at the church. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but these I, I didn't know the first play. I, I was an English teacher and a drama teacher, and I didn't know the first play that I cast. Uh, Two thirds of the kids were young life kids. And, wow. and they, they would just stay with me after rehearsal and just talk me through. Somebody had given me a Keith Green album. Somebody had given me a Slow Train Coming album by Bob Dylan. Uh, and I, um, the last thing in the world that I was supposed to do was become a believer. And um, so I, um, in this studio apartment, December 23rd, 1979, I I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to say it. I, I I got down on my knees and said some, every single day I kept renewing it because I wasn't sure it took. And, mm. um, but within, I was the most free, playful, uh, happy, delighted uh, person that you can imagine. But it's interesting to me. I got religious 
within six to nine months of that. I, I, that shame, I thought, if I felt dry or if I felt any distance from God, I thought, I've messed this thing up. I knew it. I, I was a loser. I was a failure. I lost my girlfriend, uh, the homecoming queen, and this is going to be just like that. If you get to know me enough, close enough, you will reject me. Mm-hmm. And God is no different. And I've done enough things to disappoint him and hurt him and uh, anger him or whatever. Um, so, so when um, I came out of seminary, I went all the way through seminary, I think, believing that. I am div, capital sigma, did really, really well. But I, I would say that I had a worm theology. And, and I showed up at this place, Open Door Fellowship, where I still am after all these years, and Thrall was there. And here was this CPA, this ex-CPA, this politically conservative dude in a suit with a bunch of hippies in his audience, and he's telling these truths um, of grace and teaching these truths of grace. And it wasn't even so much his words. It was the nonverbal of that environment that over time uh, convinced me. Uh, someone, I was actually preaching. Bill had me start preaching, even though I didn't know what I was talking about. I was still a moralist. Mm. And it was one Sunday I was in Ephesians 2, and somebody had given me Brennan Manning's book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, that week. Mm. And I found myself saying, um, I sure hope this branch holds, but I'm going to stop trying to hold on to God and believe that he's holding on to me. And uh, I was terrified because I had, had given up my life. I'd given up my relationships of the, the, and, and told people about Jesus and, and who he was in me. So I was terrified that it wouldn't work and that I would drift away. And, um, but uh, so far, I'm still here. Well, and, and uh, thank the Lord that you are. Out of that came really what's become a life focus of what you and Bruce McNichol and Bill yeah. Thrall at Trueface uh, called the original gospel. Do you still yeah. use that, that wording? Yeah, the original good news. Yeah, the original and, good and news. It, it's uh, stunning how quickly the church gave up the original good news, isn't it? I mean, when you when you look at how quickly uh, moralism, law, uh, performance, uh, sanctification by my good works. Uh, kind of overplated that freedom, the gospel. So it's become an obsession uh, to be able to offer that good news to others who are still believing that somehow uh, they, apart from Christ in them, um, is they're, that they're bringing something to God to impress him to be enough. That that concept, I mean, Galatians 2.20 of I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the freedom of believing that I'm not just a saved sinner, but something happened 
that actually fused me with Jesus. And I don't know where he leaves off and I start up, but I'm a brand new creature. I can never be identified as a loser again or as a, a failure that he's crazy about me. There's nothing he can do to love me more or that make him love me more or nothing I can do that will make him love me less. Uh, that, that trusting that I won't take advantage of grace, that there's, that I don't want to play a game with God, trusting that his nature in me is enough to actually vitally um, cause me to get to obey from my heart. That's been a, that's been a game changer for me. And Mm. to, to watch my children grow up in that, to watch my friends grow up and, and now to be the 65 year old man, I just turned 65 a couple well, on the 16th of February. Happy birthday. Thank you, friend. It was my birthday month, and so it just ended. So my daughter had set up that every single day, uh, man, I, I'm, I may not make it through the interview. I may pass, pass on or be translated. I every, read, I read oh, her tribute to you on Facebook. Oh, that was amazing. Oh, I teared up. Oh, man. Well, every day she set it up that somebody uh, out on our front porch, there was a basket. And every single day, some friend of mine, there would be a note in there from her letter and a gift. And so I got 28 days. It was a bad month. It should have been like September or something. With 31 <laughs> oh, Michael, it has been incredible. And I will just stare at these letters and say, could it be true? Am I this person mm. in me that they're describing? And because I trust them so much and love them so much, I go, yeah, this is who you've matured me into, God. Thanks. So it's been an amazing journey to, um, to hope, to go from that place when, when you're a young uh, preacher of these truths, saying, I hope this is true, because it would free people. I hope it holds. I hope these words that I'm saying, I'm not just... Um, slanting scripture to say what I want it to say. I hope that I'm teaching accurately these truths so that they can transform a generation. So to to get to be 65 and go, well, for crying out loud, it actually works. It really, (laughs) this actually has played out and my kids uh, don't carry a lot of the stuff that their dad did and does and my grandkids have a chance of it not even showing up in their lives that's pretty beautiful Mm. that is beautiful and that isn't that the power of the good news that we all hope it has is that it somehow takes root and it, it not only changes us from the inside out but somehow that it changes the legacy uh of of uh our children, our children's children. And your description of that, you get to, you get a glimpse of how that happens. Yeah. It's, there was a time when, uh, I don't know if I have good language for this. Maybe the first time I said it, where I wasn't present in the moment with my family, Hmm. that uh, John Lynch was still watching from behind a mask. And I have to say now my grandkids and my kids, they know the real John Lynch the best I know how to show the real John Lynch. And um, I get to enjoy them and they get to enjoy me 
And so that, that, this birthday was just one of those times where your family gets to say to you, Dad, this has been real to us. This is not just about it being real for you, but, but this is huge for us. It paid off for our family. Hmm. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You know, as I, as I watch you on the screen, and our listeners are not going to see the video, I see that you're, uh, for probably two or three minutes, you've, you've been welling up with emotion just thinking about this. And I'm struck by how much more vulnerable it can be to share these longings and this, this incredulity of believing we really are that loved, that it's more vulnerable to share that than it is at times to share, I was abused, or here's this horrible thing about me. Because that is a mark upon us, but it was in the past. And in the moment where you're just ambushed with love and affection, you have to let go of control to really receive that. And there's certain days where I just didn't even want to open up the letter because it was, that's, so fragile and and you do lose control in that moment in, in in daring to receive that kind of love as again so just the last thing about watching your face it makes me think of romans 2 where it says that it's god's kindness that leads us to repentance right it's not beating the crap out of ourselves uh as as you and i are both so familiar with as our reflex but it's it's really resting and living in that gaze of of love Gosh, I wish, I wish we could give that gift. I wish we had words and some way that we could give that gift. I, when you talk about my mission of what do I hope to get across, it is the kindness and the tenderness and the beauty along with the power and the sovereignty of our God. And I think I want so much to display that in language, in and in the way that uh, we talk about love, that that like men can talk about love, that we love each other, that that we could learn to talk to each other without the put down, without the rough man talk, that we could be men's men uh, by expressing uh, vulnerability and authenticity, and to be able to give and receive real, true, deep affirmation of who we are, not just what we can do well, but who we are as people and what we value. And to be able to say that to each other is it just allows us to dare believe that this gospel, the kindness of our God, it brings us to a place of just saying, here I am. I don't want to put on a show. I don't want to bluff. I don't want to pretend. I don't want to uh, selfishly have a life of my own that I independently. Uh, if that's true, if I am Christ in me, then that longing to love and be loved, it's innate to me. It's deep, deep, deep within me. And when we can provide a culture and an environment where that is the spendable currency, we get the best out of each other, don't we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it sometimes sounds cliche, but love True love as embodied in Jesus, who points us to the invisible image of God, that 
that that kind of love really is just transformational. It's, 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 it's what changes the world by changing one person at a time. That's right. And it's, uh, I remember we were with uh, Ernest Borgnine one time, long time ago. Mikhail's Navy. Yeah, but a group called Edmus. The Ernest, we started this group called the Ernest Borgnine Memorial Music Appreciation Society, and we'd get together and just play music for each other and hang out and have cigars and drink wine and pray for each other. And it was a beautiful thing. Anyway, before he passed away, he found out about us and he showed up and he, he came to one of our events. And at the end of the weekend, he just said, um, guys, all my life I've been affirmed for what I can do. This weekend was the first time I've been affirmed um, for who I am. Wow. And a bunch of men half my age. And, and he said, if I thought church was like this, and you guys haven't talked to me about church or God, but I know that that's what you guys are about. If it was like this, I, I would go. And so it was a beautiful, sacred reality that, um, man, I think a lot of us are afraid if we really do truly affirm each other that you know, it'll go to our heads and we'll be prideful. But, but in reality, affirmation, it humbles the heart. When we get affirmation, it, it melts our heart. And I want to do more of who you say I am. I want to be more of that in the place that affirm me. It, it's a sacred, beautiful transaction that I think if we got that, we would do it in business and marriages and family and friendships and churches and small groups and uh, father and daughter and mother and aunt. I don't know if that's possible. Mother and aunt somehow. (laughs) We know what you meant. Yeah, but we would absolutely spend it like confetti. It's interesting to me, uh, not in a bad way, but again, I'm 53, you're 65. Um, you're kind of the older brother figure to me. And when you were talking about the letters for your birthday and those words of blessing, your response was, and I say this in relation to that love puts us in a place of humility. You said, could it really be true? You know, so there, there's that sense of we don't just immediately go, oh, yeah, I'm awesome. You know, because because nobody reflexively believes that since the fall, right? Because the because the accusation and the lie against us. But then Christ allows us to go, maybe that is true, and maybe there's something more than my brokenness and my sin, and maybe there is glory there. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. I, I truly believe that. I think those of us who have or in authority, or have rules, I think if we knew that that's what that would do, that it would unlock this confidence that the gospel's true in me, that, that it's actually worked, that I remember the first time they, in my staff, when I was pastoring a church, and they put me in the middle, it was on my birthday, and they, they surrounded me, and every person affirmed me, I just went out um, I had a, an appointment at uh, Sweet Tomatoes, and I was out in the parking lot, and I just sobbed. I just thought, God, you did it. You, hmm. you, The person that I longed to someday be, not identified by my shame, but freed 
to love and be playful and convince others of this environment of grace that they could live in. You made me uh, a, a, a real conduit of that. And people are telling me that. They're telling me uh, about this environment that's freed them. I just sobbed uh, that, that it could be true. I love that word playful. Um, through our friend Paul, uh, he, he uses that word a lot, who says that God didn't uh, save us so that he can use us. He saves us to make us whole and then calls us out to play. And it seems like the most playful people with that kind of childlike joy are people that have been, for one reason or another, brought against the wall and had to encounter that kind of um, relentless, merciful, unending love that just leads you to a place of going, I'm free. That's right. I, Brennan says that, doesn't he? Didn't he say that? That <clears throat> Why is that? That some people say life owes me a shrimp cocktail a certain way and and others just say and you delight in me you're not ashamed of me you enjoy me you love to play with me you wanted there to be a michael cusack on this earth at this time exactly the way uh, you are with all of your personality and all of your idiosyncrasies and your insights and laughter and playfulness he said I want one of him. I want to make sure there's one of him. And that he absolutely takes great delight and joy in the essence of our being. And he, and he it, hum, it blows him away that we get to have this friendship. Mm. And, this, and he yelps when we get to hang out. <laughs> that's, a, that's a crazy thought. But, mm. but to dare believe it, to dare rest in it, uh, that's why I love the, the heart of man. I, I, when we read that originally, I thought this could be the hokiest movie maybe ever produced. Mm. Um, they killed it. They made this movie that showed, um, I think the love of the father doesn't say no cause, cause love of the father is needs meeting, but the delight of the father, the playfulness of the father, the, the, um, all the time in the world, uh, attitude of the father. Man, I love how that movie conveys it so wonderfully. Just grew the sun. You know, we were sitting there in that that nightclub in Hollywood, and I saw, and I'm sorry I'm blanking on his name, but the actor uh, who played the father in, in the Prodigal Son remake within the Heart of Man movie, and he and his wife who I believe she was born in Poland. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and, and he looked totally different. So I walked up to him and I introduced myself and we sat there for an hour talking about his story and his life. And it was really clear to me as delightful a man as he was uh, that he was not a Christ follower. And I hope that doesn't like break people's hearts who have seen the movie but what was absolutely fascinating to me, even though he wasn't a Christ follower, how excited he was to be able to communicate this idea of God as in the way that he did. And over and over and over again, he said, 
um, I hope that this is going to draw people together in a whole new way. And he must have said that 10 times. And it was as if he was saying, if this is what God is like, then I want everybody to know. Absolutely. That, I, I met him that night, and um, he introduced himself, and I thought, well, uh, well, I bet you you were a key grip or a gaff. Or, you know, I have no idea who you are. And he finally introduced that he was the father in the, uh, oh, my, you look nothing like it. You seem nothing like it. What a brilliant acting portrayal. But I had that same experience. He was there that evening with us, and during the experience of the making of that movie, and he said, if this is the gospel, then, then I only know how to ask the question of how to get all in, but I want others to get this. Right. Want, yeah. Yeah, I, and I, I thought to myself at that moment and later that night, and I'm quoting Mike Iaconelli, who first said this to me, but I thought, I said, if he's not a Christian, then I'm not a Christian. <laughs> That's right. Because his, yeah. you know, his heart was somewhere that his culture and his words and his understanding just couldn't articulate. So, you know, how, how do you not embrace something that you, is so good that you want to give it away to others, even though you don't know what it is? So. <laughs> well said. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick, produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. 